if you're able to really pay close attention to the stuff you use and anytime you feel slightly frustrated, write it down, write why, and that is a potential business idea. Hey everybody, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jess. And we are two internet friends exploring the intersection of independent business and rails. Welcome to Indie Rails. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Today we have a special guest and Jeremy, I don't know about you, but when we first started exploring this Indie Rails concept and then we decided to do a podcast, one of the first people that came to the top of my mind was Chris Oliver. And that's our guest today. So welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. And excited to have another Ruby podcast or Rails podcast out there. There's not a ton. I want to encourage you to keep this going. Do whatever you have to keep it going because we need more stuff like this. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, thanks a lot. We want to talk about Ruby and Rails and programming and the technical side of it. We also hope to bring in that business element and entrepreneurship and how that coincides with Rails. I think that's why Rails resonated so much with me when I started. When I was in college, I had this Google Summer of Code thing and I got paid by Google to work on some open source over the summer. And back then I was like, oh, I dream of working at one of those big companies and Fang or whatever. And very quickly realized, I don't want to be one guy that focuses on one tiny little feature in all of Google. That's not for me. What I really enjoyed was the business talking to customers and building stuff, actually build stuff and then talk to people and see actually how it helped them and stuff. So Rails really was a perfect fit because my interest, if I was just programming all day, every day and never talking to people who use my stuff, I'd lose my mind. I would burn out so fast. The entrepreneurship is why I really like Rails. And this podcast needs to exist too because most all of the other podcasts are like, mostly technical focused. And I think the missing piece here is having the entrepreneurial focus or whatever in a podcast that happens to be Rails. Speaking of entrepreneurship, did you always want to be an entrepreneur? Or when did that bug start to catch you? It's really funny because I didn't have any idea until college. And I'm learning programming and starting to realize like, oh, I need to figure out what the hell I'm going to do after college. The whole reason I'm in college is to figure out how to get a job and work in a career that I enjoy. And so I'm like reading people's blogs about technical stuff. And of course, that always, or at least at the time, always leads you to Hacker News. And this is back in 2010, 2011. I graduated college in 2011. At that time, Hacker News was the place to be for any super interesting technical problems and also the business stuff too. So I stumble across some things, find the orange site as it's known these days, and really just fell down this rabbit hole. What is Y Combinator? Oh my God, this is a place where you can go and learn how to build a startup and a business and whatever. And during my senior year of college, I interviewed at Airbnb when they were like 25 employees. and I was just reading Hacker News and seeing, oh, Airbnb looks cool and GitHub is brand new. We're you know, pretty small back then. And so I applied there as well. And I'm actually kind of glad. So like I did the Airbnb interview and they took a really long time to get back to me. And I was like, hello, are you just ghosting me? And they were like, we're on the fence. So we decided not to proceed. And I was like, that's fine. That's a good call. I respect that. And I'm really thankful, actually, because if I had moved out there, then I'd have to pay all the San Francisco rents and everything else. I'm from central Illinois originally and now live in St. Louis and like it's so cheap out here in comparison. And that was actually the reason why I could build my own business because I didn't have much to spend on rent or anything else. So like I could bootstrap my own way, didn't have to raise funding. I don't have a boss that's VCs trying to make their money back or anything. And so. That's kind of like how I got into this. But what I didn't know is like my interest in it actually came from my parents who, as a kid, were forcing me into the basement because half our basement was a wood shop and we've got like table saws and scroll saws and jigsaws and routers and all this stuff. And my parents are like building stuff on the side, wood crafts, and dragging me to these craft shows on the weekend. 
and I'd have to go set up the booth and like <laughs> put tags on everything and help my mom paint stuff and cut things out. And we'd make Christmas ornaments and all these cool things. But I hated it. I was a kid. I just wanted to play video games and have fun and whatever. I grew up with this. I had no idea my parents were also entrepreneurs until like I get into building my own business. And I'm like, you know what? This explains a whole lot. That's where all that came from. Because I knew absolutely nobody who had their own business and didn't even realize my parents had their own business or whatever. You saw it as a, almost like a hobby what they were doing is a hobby. Right. Yeah. Cause it wasn't like a full-time job that they were doing. It was just like a nights and weekends thing. And they'd go to a craft show and over a weekend they'd make like 1500 bucks, which was like a huge amount back then for extra money on a weekend. So it was amazing for them. I was like, this sucks, but I don't care about money <laughs> or whatever when I'm in grade school and being drug around to these things. I don't know what things cost at the time. So it doesn't matter to me. But then later on, I'm like, oh my God, if you could do 1500 bucks in a weekend, I'd do that every single weekend. <laughs> Especially if you enjoyed what you were building and the people that you were selling it to. Exactly. And then at some point you're like, if my costs are low, I could just work weekends and that would be it. And then it would cover all my expenses. That's crazy. That's where I like got into realizing the entrepreneurship stuff. And then reading Hacker News led me to like, we had the pleasure of interviewing Derek Sivers and he was talking about Rails back then and selling CD Baby. And I know I saw him on Hacker News and started following his blog and a bunch of the articles coming out of 37 Signals back then were all starting to make me realize I have this itch on my shoulder that I can't scratch enough where I'm like, I'm pretty sure I could build my own business. And in college, I started consulting. And then after college, I worked for a consulting company. And all that experience too was the same thing where I'm doing work for other people that's just getting wasted. So they're paying me lots of money to go build this site. And then it's used for like a month and then they give up on it and whatever. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that I could make those decisions and get people to use stuff and actually make sure that my effort is not going to waste. I am not fulfilled just getting paid and that's it. I actually want to build stuff that people use and take advantage of. And that, I guess, goes back to like when I was in high school, got my first laptop, hated Windows because it was always crashing and Millennium Edition and stuff. So then I get a Ubuntu CD and install that on my computer. And my parents are like, you're going to brick your laptop and you're going to have to you know, <laughs> buy warranty. another one. And yeah. Then of course, like my laptop has all these features. It came with a little remote control you could push in the side and then pop back out and like oh, nice. use the Windows <laughs> Media Center controller thingy. <laughs> yeah. And of course, like that doesn't necessarily work on Linux. So I get on the forums and I'm learning how to we could set up drivers to make that work or change these configs and stuff. And I'm like seeing these other college students that are building open source stuff for Linux. Some kid had made this configuration tool, easily install the NVIDIA drivers and tweak a bunch of stuff that I was like doing manually. And he made an interface for it. And I was like, I want to be that guy one day. And I'm in high school and like, seems like this kid in college is light years ahead of me. Years, and then a couple yeah. of years later, I'm in college and I'm like, you know what? Maybe I'll try to learn some programming and build something open source and give back to the community. Because that community let me learn Linux and they gave me all this like advice and stuff for free. And I was like, I'd love to give back. So I started documenting and writing tutorials as my way to give back. And then at some point I was like, that's fine, but I really want to learn to code and do some open source stuff like they're doing. So that led me to building this thing called Carex. We had dial up because my parents lived just outside of town where we had dial up and couldn't get high speed internet. And my high school has super fast internet and I got 64 meg flash drive or something. And so I was like, you know what? I think if I read these logs of what happens when I run apt update and apt upgrade or apt install Firefox on my laptop, Linux isn't like Windows where I download the executable and it's got all the dependencies in the installer. So I can write notes of all the URLs that this is trying to hit and then go download those files myself and then read through the files because they're just text files and see how it figures out that Firefox has these 20 dependencies and I can go download this myself manually. 
So I wrote a little Python thing, but that's where I first was looking into Ruby actually, because I was like, what language do I use for this? Because I want to use something that's pre-installed on Ubuntu, something I can easily run on Windows. And I don't have a Mac or know anybody who has a Mac. So be nice to be able to use that too, but whatever. So I look at Ruby and Python, and they're the two things that people are kind of recommending for that. And the answer was Python because it came pre-installed and Ruby wasn't pre-installed on Linux and stuff. So I ended up learning Python and built this little tool for myself. This thing that I wrote in high school and college got 300,000 downloads at this point. And I basically wrote this for myself and then went to the forums and shared it and was like, hey, if anybody doesn't have a computer with the internet, you can use this thing. And it's not a command line tool. So you can actually click on stuff and it feels like a real easy way to download software for Linux offline. And that was another one of the things that really influenced my life because when I post that, people start downloading it, using it and asking me for other features and saying this doesn't work and whatever. And I'm like, oh, cool. People care about this. And that really was what got me. I just fueled your motivation. Yeah. And that was before like I really had understood that like I want to build a business. The thing was like, okay, can I build something next that like more people will use? What can I keep doing to get more people using it? Because that's really fulfilling to me. If I see people using stuff, I will go to the ends of the earth to make sure that like it works well and they don't feel frustrated by using it and whatever. So the thing that happened just for me, I got messages from somebody in the US government who was like, hey, thanks for this tool. I'm using it to install software on a super secure machine that can't have network access. And this is like the only thing I can use to install stuff on there. And then somebody else was like, thanks, I live in Africa and we don't have reliable internet and it goes out all the time and whatever. So I used your tool to make a flash drive to install all the stuff that we need for our computer lab at the school. And I was like, holy crap. And I'm like a freshman in college or whatever, getting these messages. And I'm like, this is amazing. I love open source and I love making things that help people. And so that fueled me. And so I'm like, you know, I'll just do open source. And then as I get closer and closer to the end of college, I'm like, oh, I got to start learning how to be a responsible adult. And that was where the two kind of met. And I'm like, oh, I need to learn how to make a business and write code and stuff. So when you first started making the first videos for GoRails, was it a goal to make it a business? Or were you just like, I'm just going to see if I can pick up a following or see if people like this? So in college, my professor was like, hey, this other professor needs a web developer. And you're the only one I know actually doing some web development for fun in college, which was super sad (laughs) for a computer science (laughs) degree. All the students, except for me, were not interested in building websites. So anyways, I ended up working for her. And that's where I got introduced to Rails like the junior year of college. And so I learned literally everything from Ryan Bates. Like I watched every video 10 times. So when he stopped, I had been out of school. I was like working at this consulting agency doing Rails. And somewhere around then is when Ryan stopped and a year and a half goes by. And I'm like, which is funny, most days or most weeks on the job, I'm like, man, I wish Ryan would have published a video on X, Y, or Z. And it was enough of my own personal edge where I was like thinking about it in the back of my mind. But going back to like giving back to the community, So while I was consulting at this little agency, I was just teaching myself things for fun. And so I realized like I could write my notes in my notebook or on my computer in my notes app, but they're always private to me. And I was like, honestly, if I'm going to set up a rail server, there's nothing that I need to keep secret or proprietary in my notes. So why don't I just like share that? And I was posting it on my personal blog for a long time. And then at some point, And I'm starting to learn about SEO. And I'm like, I'm going to go see if I can buy a Rails domain and just put my notes publicly on that. And maybe they'll be a little bit more findable. So that's where I ended up buying GoRails. And then that got a bunch of traffic from posting the Deploy Rails guide because it started getting linked on Stack Overflow. And that's when I realized like, I got 5,000 visits to this blog last month that I have two or three articles on it and that's it. And that's a lot of traffic from what I'm used to, 10 or 100 a month. And then I'm like, maybe I could do something with that. So 
So that's when I was like, I'm going to see if I can sell something to these people. And in my mind at that time, I don't want to commit to doing weekly screencasts or anything. So I put together a five video course that's free and a 10 video course that's $40. So this was like January of 2014. I spent like three months trying to record 15 videos and it was so painful. Like I am a programmer and I'm self-taught. So I don't think out loud ever. And so trying to explain the stuff in the videos was like so, so hard back then. And that's where I ended up creating these two courses, one to give away for free so that hopefully people would sign up and enjoy it. And maybe then they will trust that I have something to teach them and then buy the other one. So that was my first attempt at selling something. And I sold 10 maybe or something. It was hardly anything. It was like two a month originally. I'd sell $80 worth and I was like, sure as hell can't pay rent on $80 a month and live like this. So that's when I like switched to the $9 a month plan because I was like, well, Ryan Bates was doing it. He made money with that. So maybe the people will give me 9 bucks a month, which is too little. But why would anybody give me any money? So you had a pretty low turnout on that first sale. Yeah. Why didn't you just say, okay, that was a failed experiment. I'll move on to the next thing. Well, nobody knew who I was. So that was the thing where I was like, you know what? I trust Ryan because he gave out a free video every week. And then that meant that if I'm learning stuff from his free stuff, I'm definitely going to learn stuff from the pro episodes. I knew chances are I just need to find people who are like more beginner than I am because I can't teach stuff to Rails experts or Ruby experts because I'm not an expert. And I just need to go find those people who are newer than me and then share things that I've learned over time and save them time. Then it just came down to like, I don't know, I'm going to just try something else because I can't understand why anyone would buy my course when I can't give them a preview of it really, because that would just be giving away the content. So then I need some other way to build trust with them and build my audience. And so that's when I was like, screw it. I'm just going to try making every other video free. And I actually made those whole 15 videos that I originally created in that course free, and then started to try and drip out like a paid video every once in a while. But I would send out an email or a blog post on my site and be like, Hey, here's a forum. Like, What stuff would you like to learn? And maybe I can teach it to you. But then people were answering... I'd love to learn how to edit audio and like do all these other non Ruby or Rails things. And I was like, you got to go somewhere else for that. (laughs) There's a different site for that. So that's where it started. And like, I had no idea what would happen switching from trying to sell a course where I started to realize if you're going to sell a course, people need to already trust you. You got to do a lot of sales and marketing ahead of time to convert that person to buying it. And I'm a programmer who thinks that salespeople and marketers are like shady people. A lot <laughs> yeah. of salespeople are shady. Like, I just don't like that stuff, at least back in high school and college yeah. and stuff. Like, I developed that where we're like, we're programmers, we're awesome, we can build stuff. And like, all they can do is sell and try and trick people into spending their money on stuff they don't need. And so I had this like negative connotation for all that. I was like, I don't want to do that, but I do need to figure out some alternative. And so my alternative was I give away a lot of free stuff and I have some pro videos in there, just like Ryan was doing, just copying him more or less because I saw it was working for him and it doesn't seem like he's coming back. And I really miss it. And I think other people miss it. By switching to that, everybody started to notice, oh, this is just like Railscast. And instead of buying a course, they're like, oh, I miss Railscast too. I'd like to support that. And I think there was a lot of like goodwill Then nine months later, it's like September of 2014. And in January is when up until then, I was always working on, you know, meeting people at startup weekends and meetups in St. Louis and stuff, trying to be an entrepreneur and work on something. But I don't know what product to build. So I'm like meeting these other people who have product ideas that just need a developer. And of course, we work on stuff and nothing ever goes anywhere because they don't know what they're doing. And yeah. I can build a really great thing, but they sure as hell don't actually know how to sell it, even though that's what they told me they did. Then as of January, I was really tired of consulting and I'd saved up some cash. And my problem was if I'm not focused on building a product first and foremost, I will handicap myself. 
I will go do the easier thing. Let's just do more consulting work because I know I can make money that way versus the hard thing. Like I have to go talk to customers. I have to like figure out how to change the product to make money from it and whatever. So I was always like not doing that stuff on my side and weekend projects that were trying to make money. And I realized like I need to burn the bridges, quit consulting, force myself to figure this out and hold my feet to the fire. So I did that as of January. And that's when I started really working on the screencast and then pivoting to doing the weekly stuff. I ran out of money as of September and I started interviewing at a YC startup that was in education as well and had a Rails thing. And during my interview process, the day that I interviewed with the CEO of the company, Go Rails got submitted to Hacker News and was like number two or number one all night. And so I woke up to MailChimp sending me 600 emails of new subscribers because I still hadn't turned that off. And then I wake up to that. And then, of course, that nails my interview where it's, oh, look, you're top of Hacker News and we're a YC company and whatever. So I ended up taking that job because I ran out of money and I had learned a lot then, but it was just weird timing because I'm like, I can start to see some product market fit, but I've run out of money. So I can't keep doing it by myself and I need to like bridge the gap somehow. But I was also burnt out of nine months of sort of effectively failure, but like little twinkle of success just happened at the very end, a little too late. Just enough to keep you alive. Yeah, it was weird timing because then I was like, I hate this. I want to just get rid of it or something. I do it for free, but not for money because trying to make money for it was like the part that was soul sucking. So I ended up going to work for that company for a year, but I kept doing GoRails during that time that I was at that company, more or less just for free. But we kept it running and it grew during that time. But it probably grew a lot because I was just having fun then instead of being worried about like have to make money. And that's funny. Jeremy and I are taking this course and it's a business course called Small Bets. And it talks about the randomness of business and how people think that if you just work hard, it'll come and how that's not always yeah. true. And that there's a lot of randomness that happens. And it's interesting to hear that in your story about how you work so hard. And then randomly one day, this Hacker News event happens and it changes the course. Yeah. You get little glimpses of success. There's those little moments where you're like, Oh, I'm onto something. You'll have a moment of you launch a new product and like an email from some stranger who's like, I signed up for your thing and this thing's totally broken and doesn't work. And also I need this other feature. If somebody's willing to like try your thing that doesn't know you and is giving you feedback on that, you go bust your hump to go fix those things and get back to them and like treat it as a consulting job for them because that's a really good sign that you're onto something that helps, you know, at least one person, but in theory, it'll help thousands or whatever. Yeah, but it represents others. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a twinkle of like, oh, you might be onto something. And if you don't have those things, you're probably not onto something or it's going to be a very hard grind to convince people to go use your stuff. But if you notice that people are using your things and you're not having to drag them to use it, that's a really good sign. If you had to go back, you know, like when you decided to burn the bridges on consulting, if you had to go back, would you do the same thing or would you try to think about it differently? Would you try to like do partial consulting work to like get a longer runway on that? What would you do? Considering where I was at at the time, if I was to go back with the knowledge I have now, I wouldn't need to do that. But back then, I wasn't putting my best hours into these projects. I wake up in the morning and I would go do my consulting work for eight hours and then I'd be tired. And my best hours are in the morning when I'm fresh. And I would work on my own stuff in like my worst hours. So at a certain point, I like switched that and I started to see like more things get figured out better. And my lesser quality hours later in the day were effectively exactly the same for the clients that I was working for. I was just throwing away stuff that my own time that I could have spent better. So switching that helped. And that's one thing I would definitely have done much sooner. I didn't realize like nights and weekends are your extra hours. But if you're really committing to figuring out your own business, put your best hours into that. And then your secondary stuff can be... That energy can go into your day job because 
they're probably more than happy with that secondary quality of work and they won't notice the difference or whatever. And that'd be something. But honestly, like for me, I don't know, for the longest time, and I still do, like just sort of doubt yourself. I don't know if I can do this. And so for me, I just had this confidence deep down inside. I'm pretty sure that if other people can do this, I could figure that out too. So really, I had to fight my own psychology for, and I still do. And just like burning the bridges was the only way where I was, had to force myself into doing things I was uncomfortable doing. And that sort of became a thing I really embrace now where it's like, hey, if you're not comfortable talking to customers or something like, you shouldn't be doing anything else but that. You should go push yourself to do things that scare you. Chances are, I think a lot of people who want to get into entrepreneurship are just holding themselves back because they're just comfortable the way they are. You're a developer. You think that sales and marketing is negative or bad or whatever. One of the things that like changed my life too was at that YC startup, we hired a sales guy and he and I became really good friends. And he was telling me basically, look, your job as a salesperson is help them solve their problems. Hopefully, it will be your product. But if it's not, you just tell them, sorry, I don't think we're a great fit. But we have this competitor that's probably going to help a lot more than we could. And like, just be a good person. And that's good sales. And I was like, oh my God, you're right. Because the people that I think of when I hear the word the salesperson is like the car salesman trying to sell you anything versus what you actually want. And I saw on Reddit the other day, it was like somebody went to the Audi dealership and they had the sales guy like, what's your price range? Like, what's your budget? Blah, blah, blah. And then they go to the BMW dealership and take a car out. And the sales guy's like, you know, the pedal goes all the way to the floor, right? Encouraging him to like, try out the car and enjoy it. And like, maybe you want something fun and they don't want to get in the way of you making the decision. They just want to show you what's there and what's possible and stuff. That's the right way to look at sales. And marketing is the same thing effectively. It's just instead of doing one-on-one conversations, you're just trying to broadly educate people about the same things. That's funny you mentioned that. We just recently bought a new car and the salesperson we had was exactly like that. He was not like a salesperson. He was just like this guy who really liked this car. And he was just like showing us all the cool features of it. Yeah. Yeah. 2022 was a pretty big year for you, huh? Oh my God. Yeah. New house, first child. Yep. So he's five and a half months old now and starting to eat. He loves his bananas and apples and pears and stuff. (laughs) And also last year was when I hired Colin, first employee full time. That's big. Yeah. It was an interesting year because the business still did well. But like, I feel like I worked half as much as normal year because our house bill didn't go super well. So I was driving out here twice a day, spending several hours trying to make sure things are done right and shortcuts were not being taken and whatever. And I'm glad to have all that behind me. But you get to a point too, where in the beginning of building a business, you have more time than money. So that's the resource that you use. And over time, hopefully that flip flops and you have more money than time and you can invest your money to get your time back and focus on the things you want to focus on and stuff. But over time too, you have to figure out where that balance strikes as well. Because going back to like some earlier days, I originally was like, I need to hit effectively like minimum wage in Missouri to survive here. And I hit that and then you keep growing and stuff. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. I made a hundred thousand this year. This is awesome. I'm starting to feel like a regular salary, even though I've got to pay health insurance and stuff out of there. And it's not quite what you would get from a real job. It is working. And then as I got a few years in, there was a moment where you can like optimize different parts of your life. And the small bets course is Daniel Vasallo's course. One of the things he says a lot is you're making the business for you. Like, and DHH just talked about this too, where it's like the whole reason at least for bootstrappers, is you want to make the business work for your lifestyle. And so there was a point in time where GoRails was doing well enough and I decided to optimize my effort on it. And so what I ended up doing was like, as long as I have some topic that I already know, I can take Monday, record a video on Monday, 
and do nothing the rest of the week. So I'd like play video games and work four days a month and make a hundred thousand dollars a year. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, this is wild. Living and I dream. was three or four years in and I'm exhausted and like sort of burn out. So that's what I ended up optimizing. So I could just play video games or whatever I wanted that week. And then eventually you get bored of that and you're like, okay, so what's the next challenge or whatever. But it was like really interesting to like, it took forever to make a hundred thousand a year. But then once you're there, you can decide what's my goal. Is it really to make 200,000 a year or do I just want my time back? And I'm maybe I'm tired and I just want to relax for a little while. And so that's what I ended up doing was like, okay, how little work can I do to make the same amount of output? And that worked for maybe six months or something before I'm naturally someone who couldn't just retire at 30. So that ended up like, okay, well, education is a business with high churn. Every business will have its own weird situation. This is the thing that you start out building a business idea and you're like, I just want to make 100000 a year. That way, I don't feel bad that I could have made more money at a job. I maybe make close or less, but I have all this control over what I get to do. It's way more fulfilling, whatever. It's a trade-off I definitely don't mind doing. But you also don't realize at the beginning because you are desperate just to make any money. You don't realize what product you're building because you don't care. You're just trying to make a thousand bucks a month, five thousand, ten thousand a month, or whatever. And you're willing to take some sacrifices that the second time entrepreneur would not, because that person's going to say, Well, you're going into education. People are going to learn from you and then cancel immediately because they learned what they needed to. And there's really no reason for them to stick around. And so you end up like, oh, this is interesting. That's an aspect of this business that Duolingo is the same situation. They work on streaks and other gamification things to just remind you, if you keep at this every month and you don't stop, then we get to survive as a business and grow, but also you will learn better from that. And you know they work towards those things to basically combat the weaknesses that every business has. And that's like how things grow. And the other thing that YC, like, I don't know if it was Paul Graham or other startup people talk about this is like your business being default dead or default alive, where we don't make enough money every month. So if things went south, then we'd have to shut down right away. Or as I grew to that point where I could work four days a month or Tim Ferriss's four hour work week, it was crazy that I achieved that at one point. But then you get to realize, Oh, okay. We can choose what to optimize and what not to address. We are now in a state of default alive because I can put in the bare minimum effort and the business will continue at the same rate or even continue to grow, but it would never shrink. And pretty much, I don't think GoRails has ever shrunk year to year, which is awesome. Yeah. That's good news for us people in the Rails community too. Yes. <laughs> That's another thing that's like a fascinating aspect of GoRails is like the sentiment around Ruby on Rails as a framework mm -hmm. really affects and swings our the amount of effort I have to put in to like stay even or grow from the previous year. If everybody on Hacker News is like Rails is dead and Ruby is dead, it is tough. So it is one of those things where like our success is tied to the success and popularity of the framework. But I could go over to Node.js and React and whatever. And like, you could probably blow right past GoRails because that is way more people, way more popular. And it is what it is. I don't want to be in that community. I don't mind that we're going to grow slower than they will. But it is another lever that we can't control or we can try and influence, but we can't really control it. That just is how our business will be. If you're a real estate person, the real estate market is not something you can control and you just have to like hang on for the ride. You picked your city and that's what you live with. Yeah. And or the market is just like crazy because there's really low rates or really high rates or whatever the stuff is. And I feel like that's just something that when you're trying to make your first business successful, you don't think about any of that stuff because you're just trying to make a dollar. In a way, like you just have to continue that route. But if you can try to pick stuff that you can leverage this is popular right now. Chat GPT is really popular right now. If you can build a little product that you know builds on top of that, 
then you might be able to jumpstart real fast and make $5,000 a month. Like Peter levels with his AI photos and stuff, making crazy money. And anybody else could have done that. He got to be one of the first people who was like doing that. There are several other people doing the exact same product, more or less. They're also making a ton of money. It's just the right thing at the right time. They took advantage of that. And you got to be willing to like make some of those sacrifices too. Because I think the other thing is that your dream of what the business builds and sells is not necessarily what people will actually pay for. So you might be going in the right direction, but you realize that like a good example of this is the intercom founders were building Exceptional, I think it was the name of it, that later became Airbrake. And they were building an error monitoring tool for Rails and other frameworks. And they built a little chat widget to talk to their customers that was embedded in the product. And all their customers were like, what is this? This is really cool. And they realized they need to sell their error monitoring business and then go all in on Intercom, which is just their messaging. I didn't realize that origin story. That's so cool. I don't think I did either. Yeah. So you can find some like history about that. The reason I found out about them was we used to use Qualaroo at a previous job and I wrote a Ruby gem for them. And then somebody from Qualaroo reached out to me and was like, why did you do this? And I was like, well, I need to integrate with your API and you don't have a Ruby gem. So I made one and he was like, oh, wow. And then he was like, well, do you want to come work for us? And I guess at some point around then, some investors bought Qualaroo, if I remember right. And I was poking around their previous acquisitions and I noticed exceptional and started to connect the dots that Intercom came from an error monitoring tool that that was their magic feature that they ended up building that became a whole product and became a giant business. And I think that's the thing where like Small Bets talks about all of the stuff Daniel Vassal is talking about is basically like, throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. You are not a funded company and you don't have to make a heavy commitment into a specific thing. You can go try a bunch of ideas, look for those little twinkles like we were talking about of success and then go for it because you don't have to make billions of dollars because you're just one or two people and you need to make 200,000 for two people or whatever at the beginning. And it's a totally different ball game because you can play it at different odds. Yesterday, we were talking about Hatchbox on the Rubber Duck Dev Show. And that's our little hosting product that nobody will compete with because nobody wants that business. Because Heroku, Fly, Render all want you to pay every application $10 for a server, $10 for a database, $10 for Redis, $10 for this and that. And we're like, eh, we'll charge you $10 for the whole thing. And (laughs) you give us the server and we'll set it up for you. And it's like the funded startups can't survive on that little revenue, but we can build a business that works for a handful of individuals. And that's perfect. You know, I think there's just a lot of those analyze the business idea and the pros and cons and where the market is at and what is commoditized, what is not. There's a blog series somewhere that I will mention as well that really helped me understand when I'm building products now. And it's about Wardley maps. And I forget that. I think it's the guy's last name, Wardley. It was originally posted to Medium, but his like second post shows a Wardley map. And it's like basically an X and Y graph. Here are all the components of your business. If you're building Hatchbox, servers are very commoditized. So they're very cheap. But configuring stuff is expensive. Hosting, like storage is cheap. And you basically plot out all your dependencies and you're like, what are my tools? I have to use Nginx and Postgres and Redis. And we've got to pay for our own hosting. And our customers have to do that too. And you map out all this stuff and you can see where the state of the world is. And you can see like, once this thing becomes cheaper, we could set ourselves up. If you're building a chat thing or an AI thing, you could have been working on it last year. So that once it really becomes more commoditized next year when... GPT comes out, we can be prepared and like really take advantage of that drop in cost or whatever. You can also use that to kind of find gaps in the market where Hatchbox kind of lives is nobody is going to build a service that is for hobbyists and small business like we do because they want to make billions of dollars 
And we don't care. We don't need to do that. We don't want to do that. And that gives us a really great business. ConvertKit went into a big market and they're kind of doing the same thing. They're making millions every year. Amazing. But also that's like a billions of dollars spent every year in email marketing. So like you can craft your own little niche out of there, make $50 million a year and nobody else notices. That's wild. (laughs) So going back to your hiring, you had one hire in 2022 and then you doubled that just this quarter, right? Yeah. It's something I'm definitely learning. And it's another one of those questions you have to decide about what business are you building? My friend Peter Askew, who does domaining stuff and job boards, he's like made an explicit thing where he will never hire anybody and he wants to just keep it small intentionally and just him. And there's way less overhead and things like that. As we built GoRails out and added Hatchbox and then Jumpstart and stuff, I realized I used to be of that mindset, but now I've done too much and I'm overwhelmed. And the options are to like, kill a product or I've got to hire and continue. And I also have a lot of other ideas and things I would like to build and ship. And the only way to do that is really to expand the team and get my time back so I can reinvest it in different areas and stuff. So I decided to make that call of hiring instead of just intentionally staying small. But up until that point, I had that same chip on my shoulder. I didn't know if I could build a business period. And then I started making more money than I would get at a regular job. And then I realized, how far can I take this? Like, How far can I go as one person? And that grew to be like crazy. And then at some point, I'm like, yeah, you're making all this money, but now you're overwhelmed with work. Why don't you spend some of that money and get some time back and like share the work And whatever. And so that's like the direction I'm going now. But going from one person to two employees is hard. When you have one person, it feels like just your co founder and your friend where you just work together all the time and that's it. But then going from two to three employees and and so on becomes like, I have a different job now. Like I can't just code all day, every day or whatever. And I have to make sure that everybody else has work to do and I've assigned them things. And There's a whole other level there now. But I know also that I think I'll be more effective with the team. If I'm the bottleneck of writing all the code, then we can't accomplish as much. But if I can teach everybody on the team how to do things well and efficiently and the way we want to do them or whatever, then I think as long as I can train the team to be doing that kind of stuff, then... In theory, my output can be 10 times what it would be if it was just me typing code all day. That's the hope, but I don't know. And, and it's an experiment, but you can always go backwards. Don't tell them that. But you can always, if They'll you realize know. it's a mistake, you can go backwards. Yeah. The other thing that has happened is that last year was I built a house, had a baby, and all these other life changes that are now well, I can't just work all evening or all weekend anymore. I want to spend time with my kid and my family and I want my employees to do the same thing. And so your perspective changes. For me, the reason why I could quit consulting cold turkey and just live off savings to start in the beginning was because I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't have any responsibilities. It was just me and my friends hanging out in the evenings or whatever. And I had the freedom to like, take that risk. But if you already have a wife and kids, that's a risk you probably don't want to take. But that just means you need to make different decisions. You need to pay more attention to those market things. If AI is getting hot, maybe that's something you should take a look at. And it depends too if you have something that you really are passionate about that you must go into. Like I really wanted to do Ruby on Rails stuff and give back to the community. But if you don't really care then you have more flexibility to say like, I'll go teach myself Node or AI or whatever and just go to where the exciting stuff is and find an opportunity there. And if you're trying to do something that you really care about, that may never make money. It may be something you care about, but not enough other people do. So you have to like analyze all that. And those are some of those things that can hold you back if you're not willing to confront them. I got a scenario for you. Say that private investor came in, bought all of your products. 
and you were left without a job, but then you lost all your money in the lottery. So now you got to go back to work. <laughs> you had some ideas earlier. You don't have to share your ideas, but if you were starting over, what would you be hacking on? What are some good business ideas? Honestly, intercom example is pretty much the same thing I would end up doing. There's several things that video hosting is a good example. Wistia was what we were using for the paid videos on GoRails and like they just don't care about customers like us. They care about marketers who are putting a video on your homepage, trying to collect email addresses. And now they're getting into like video podcast hosting, which makes a lot of sense. Is it they're doing the same thing I was talking about earlier, where it's like you see everybody starting a podcast. A lot of them are trying to do video now, and a lot of the podcasts hosting services don't support that. So Joe Rogan's podcast is probably the biggest example of a video podcast a lot of people watch. So Wistia is trying to like get into that market. They don't care about like people selling videos in a subscription like we do. So I actually really went down the rabbit hole a year ago and exploring like what would it cost and take to build that alternative. And we ended up not making the decision to like do it because doing the math and using an underlying tool like Mux, where you upload the video that you export from Zoom or whatever, or ScreenFlow or whatever it is. If you were to use AWS to transcode that video into the different frame rates and everything, or the bit rates and resolutions and everything, you're going to pay a lot of money. Because Wistia is doing such scale, they I'm sure have negotiated or built their own infrastructure behind the scenes to do it significantly cheaper than what AWS or Mux is going to sell it to you. And so we ended up basically not doing that. But then a month ago or whatever, Wistia came to me and was like, yeah, your grandfather plan is going to be no longer, which really pisses me off because it really doesn't affect them at all to continue servicing me at the exact same price because I don't care about any of their new features. And so they were going to like double our price. And I was like, all right, time to leave. And in that time, some of the other alternatives have come up like Cloudflare Stream, which has been around for a while. That's killer. They don't charge you for the transcoding work. The downside is they don't actually store the original video, if I remember right. So they'll transcode it, but then you like lose the original. They don't support like 4K. And so it's not a perfect solution for everybody. But because they're like willing to eat the costs of some of that work, you get this service that's really cheap, but it doesn't have an admin interface. So you could actually build a product as an admin UI over Cloudflare Stream oh, and charge a little extra over top of that. But yeah. then you'd have to figure out how to manage all the like is metered billing on how much bandwidth is used and all that. So you'd have to do some pretty interesting work and probably would take quite a lot of time to do it right. But it's one of those things where as you're building something or using these other tools and you start to realize like intercom costs an arm and a leg, we could build something that is maybe a fraction of the cost and doesn't have all the features, but has all the core stuff that I care about. You know, And you start to notice the various different services you're using and realizing, you know what? Stripe doesn't have merchant of record. That is why Paddle exists. And then you start to realize you could probably build an intermediate version of these two different products that nobody's really struck the middle ground properly on. And I have probably a laundry list of things that I've noticed over the years that I would probably go into on a few of those ideas. But that's a good one where I was like, Maybe I will go build a video hosting service that makes it easy for us as an admin to go upload an image, just drop in a JavaScript embed or a video rather, drop a JavaScript embed in and then have that with a little JavaScript associate the ID to your form and boom, you're ready to go. And like the admin area for GoRails wouldn't have to even integrate with an API to pull down all the videos. It could just be all JavaScript and done in two seconds. If you have a use case, that's unique, you might be able to build a great product for that niche that could get you started to go take on those giant companies. Like you could build something that works similar to Wistia, serves a slightly different market than they care about primarily. And then if you made a good bet, that could end up growing to the point where you could start competing with Wistia themselves or something. And then those companies oftentimes 
grow too fast, get acquired, and then their new owners don't really care. Like Heroku gets bought by Salesforce and then they don't care about all the free projects anymore. And then everybody moves to looking for alternatives like Hatchbox or Render or Fly or whatever. The more you use stuff and you pay attention to their rough edges, the more you'll realize that like, yes, the SaaS product ideas are just compared to 10 years ago, like everybody's doing everything. Like anything you can think of has probably been done already, but it's that stuff in the cracks that really is where the new ideas are. Like ConvertKit was a good example where everybody was like, you want an email list? You go to MailChimp or you go to ActiveCampaign or something. And then people started to notice the cracks were like, this doesn't really help the personal bloggers or whatever quite like it should and ConvertKit and then Drip as well. But then Drip, flash in the pan, it gets real big, then it gets sold and then they change some things and then everybody leaves or whatever. Everybody's kind of like, this isn't what I signed up for anymore. And they look for alternatives and it's like, well, you could absolutely go build what Drip was originally intending to be because everybody was really excited about it. And Tuple's another good example. Screen Hero, everybody loved that. Then they get acquired by Slack and pretty much just shut down or ruined or whatever. And then Tuple's like, everybody used to like that idea. Shut down for whatever reason. Let's try it again. And that's what I did with Go Rails. Railscast goes away. I miss it. I'll try and create my own version that's not really trying to exactly replace that, but do it in my own way. And it works. That's a really good tactic if you're trying to find a business idea. Look at stuff that shut down that people really miss. Because the idea is already validated. Exactly. Especially if it's in some area that people were paying money for. So Tuple was a gamble because nobody was really paying for a screen hero. Not the way they are paying for Tuple, but Tuple was the right time. Releasing that when COVID happens and everything, it was just like, well, what do we use? We don't have Screen Hero anymore. We have to use Tuple. And for the timing to be right, it can just really take you from one to a million dollars in a year or something versus one to $10,000 in the yeah. first year. <laughs> so yeah. it really is dependent on a lot of other things outside of your control, but you never know what'll happen. I love that. Yeah. The other piece of that was like when products move up market, when products die that people were using or when products move up market, leaving a gap. Yep. I love that idea of that's watching for those patterns. That's really good. When any product changes their pricing and increases it significantly, like Intercom has, you had all these competitors come up out of the woodwork or whatever. (laughs) And it's just a ton of opportunity that you see like, Wistia raised their prices on me. That was a reminder, like, maybe I should go revisit that idea because maybe there's now a gap that we could do. And the first person to like fill that gap has the first mover advantage. And if you do a good job of marketing that, and you could watch Twitter for like me complaining that I had to leave Wistia because they doubled my prices and I got no benefit out of paying double. If I'm complaining about it publicly, then probably bothering me enough that I would look at a competitor. If you understand from the customer's perspective, because you were the one dealing with these problems, you can go solve those really well. Your pricing page can have those calculators that are like, going to compare us to Bunny or you want to compare us to Cloudflare or Wistia? We can build the landing page for that. We can build calculators and say, how many videos do you have? What's your average video resolution and all that? And then we can give you an estimate of pricing. And we did that on Hatchbox for Hatchbox versus Roku pricing. And it's like, you do the calculation and save $400 a month or whatever. And then it's a pretty easy sale. And that's because I was a customer of Heroku and I knew the pain point and everything. And I can go build the marketing and sales stuff around that, which is very straightforward because you understand the customer's problems. But if you're like going to build something for real estate agents and you don't know any real estate agents and you haven't been one, Good luck doing any of that because you're just not going to understand what you should be doing. It's just not going to work. Or sometimes it's only your pain point and nobody else's. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another thing to like, you definitely want to make sure that when you're evaluating these things, that it's not just you. I knew that it couldn't possibly be just me for building Hatchbox and the cost of hosting 
on Heroku or Render or whatever for small business or side projects, especially when Heroku is like, you get an X number of hours per month and your app will be shut down on the free tier every day for X number of hours. And you're like, that is not an experience I want to give to my users where the website's down when business hours are over. That's not an experience you want for your website. If you're able to really pay close attention to the stuff you use and anytime you feel slightly frustrated, write it down, write why. And that is a potential business idea. You definitely may not want to do some of those things. For example, I was nervous when I started GoRails of committing to doing a video every week. That is a whole tiny commitment compared to running Hatchbox where like we're helping deploy your applications to production which means that we need to be... It's kind of urgent when something is broken. Yeah, 24-7. And is, exactly. So like I now work often on Saturdays and Sundays, but I will take random times off during the week or whatever because I end up working my 40 hours, what I try to stick to every week. But if I got to spend an hour on Sunday night answering a couple of emails, I don't mind. I will take an afternoon off during the week and just go watch John Wick or something. You can decide how to live your life that way, which is nice because you wouldn't normally get that at a day job. They would end up scheduling you as on call for Saturday and Sunday and give you like Thursday and Friday off or whatever the case is. And you may not be able to do that, scheduling people to do that work, but you also just get to get paid for that and you're not paying other people to man those hours, which is nice. So lots of trade-offs always with anything that you're doing, but You have to realize too that if I build something that's critical to somebody's business, then it is critical for me to provide good support and be there all the time. But also, that is something that's critical to their business, which means they're willing to pay more. They're probably not going to pick up and leave tomorrow on a whim. Like if I'm hosting 600 videos on Wistia, you know what I have to do? I have to download 600 videos from Wistia and then re upload 600 videos to some other service transcode all of those, re-upload the thumbnails, reorganize everything. And that took me forever to do. Luckily, I have fiber internet and that was <laughs> significantly faster. But like on my old internet, our old house was like 30 megabyte upload and it would have taken me weeks. And I would have been maybe finding a high school with high-speed internet again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when you have a business idea, like those Wordly maps are very useful to visualize. Is this mission critical? What are our dependencies? What are our customers' dependencies? And you can really get a good holistic view of their business idea and map it out and see now is not the right time. But in two years, when server costs go down, then all of a sudden this is like doable. AI and chat GPT, not feasible. I read something that they were spending $3 million a month to run chat GPT, which is nothing for Microsoft or whatever to spend, but it would have been 300 million a month 10 years ago or more. So like now that's an idea that's like actually doable versus then. And those maps help you like analyze that stuff. And you can just see, does this business work? Could Hatchbox work for a single person to maintain it? Maybe not a few years ago. It does work now. All right, Chris. Well, Man, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. You've been such a prominent figure in our community. And I just always appreciate your laugh and your joyful attitude and just your willingness to help people that are in business or in Ruby and in our community. So thank you for always doing that. Thank you for taking a chance on us and coming and doing this podcast. And I'm really looking forward to meeting you at RailsConf. Are both of you going to be there? Yes. Yeah. Excellent. (laughs) I can't wait. And that is... Yeah, just around the corner. Yeah, Yeah, getting very close. Can't wait. I did want to ask how the ticket sales and everything for your new conference is going. Things are coming along pretty well. We had our early bird tickets a week or two ago. And so now we're onto regular pricing. Things are coming along. Our speaker lineup is looking really good. And I'm really happy. I was very stressed about how that would go. Would people submit their talk proposals and things like that? We had like 55 submissions and like just that spoiled for options. It was great. And it was so hard to narrow down to 10. Honestly, we could have done two tracks and but a single track. I think it's going to be great. 
for your first year, it's probably a heck of a lot easier to organize one track. I also like that everybody who attends a small conference like that experiences the same thing. Yeah. Because if you have two, then it starts to be that some people see some stuff or meet some people and they don't all overlap. So it's probably a good call for the first time. That's good. We'll be sure to share it out too for anybody else who hasn't heard of it yet and wants to get a ticket. But the small regional conferences are by far my favorite. It's just you get to go to dinner with some of your favorite people or new friends and just make life friends from that stuff. I love that. That's the best. Thanks. That's cool. If you want to get a ticket, it's blueridgeruby.com. Thank you again, Chris. This has really yeah, been fun. It's been uh, great. And everybody knows where to find you. You're on Twitter, GoRails, Hatchbox, Jumpstart, Beginner Boundaries, anything else? Thanks for having me. And if anybody wants to ever chat about product ideas or just want some advice on things like send me an email or send me a DM on Twitter or whatever. Always happy to chat. I still make time for all of that because it's just fun to meet people and see what they're doing. So I love it.